What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Cat Brooks. House Bill 1467, signed by Florida's Governor DeSantis in March of last year, states that schools must be transparent in their selection of instructional, library, and reading materials. In theory, this simply means that parents have the right to know what their students are reading and a means to view those materials. Bill language states that all materials must be free of pornography, gender identity issues for students in kindergarten through third, as well as any books relating to discrimination based on race, color, sex, or national origin. The books must also be approved by a certificated media specialist, something that most public schools are too broke to afford. The bill does not name specific books to ban, nor a system in which to vet the books. It does, however, come with the threat of a class three felony, which means teachers could lose both their teaching certificate and their right to vote. The bill is basically a book ban of anything and everything conservatives don't like, including black people's words, thoughts, and histories, and has the potential to undo decades of work and struggle to ensure young black children have access to reading materials that reflect back to them their divinity. Our guest today is Ms. Daphne Muse, or Mama Muse. Ms. Muse is a writer, social commentator, and cultural broker, who is currently the elder in residence at the Black Studies Collaboratory in Abolitionist Democracy in the Department of African American and Diaspora Studies at UC Berkeley. She developed the Third Word Children's Literature section of Drum and Spear Bookstore, has been a curriculum consultant for school districts including Berkeley Unified, Oakland Unified, Washington, D.C., as well as the New York Harcourt Brace Jovanovich Text Division, the Education Division of the Commission on Major League Baseball in partnership with Scholastic. She is the author-editor of Children of Africa, the new press guide to multicultural children's literature prejudice, stories about hate, ignorance, revelation, and transformation. She had taught black and multicultural children's literature at UC Berkeley and Mills College. Welcome, Ms. Daphne Muse. Thank you for all of your work, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. I am deeply moved to be included in this conversation. And I would like to start off by noting um, your introductory comments about DeSantis and book banning, which is not new, has, goes back way into the um, 1950s uh, when, or even before, but in the 50s, during the McCarthy era. Um, the same thing was taking place. Writers in film, writers' books were also being banned. Um, I would like to also just point out that I have a problem, well, I have a specific problem with black people, other people of color, LGBTQ, I do not like us being referred to as issues. I am not an issue. I am a human being rooted in a particular identity that chooses to support the reflection of my identity in its boldest characteristics and across time and history. 
Well, that is certainly a way to kick off the interview. And y'all, that is the fire of Ms. Daphne Muse. I was gonna um I was gonna build up to talking about the bill, but since you you went there, let's let's start with that and then we can go back and talk about the the history of of the struggle to even get black books into children's black children's hands. Go a little deeper for us, uh, Ms. Muse, your specific concerns about bills like the book ban in Florida, specifically in terms of accessibility for Black children of Black children's books. Well, bills like this are designed to close the door to accessibility, not only to Black children, but to all children, and to cripple any kind of critical thinking or any kind of empowerment of children to ask questions, to be curious, to become deep thinkers. Because when that happens, you can't control them. And it is all about controlling children so that when they become adults, they're so accustomed to the control, they know nothing else. And they actually seek to be controlled because they have not had the experience of what it is like to be an independent thinker. This is also going to crush the backbone of teachers, some of whom will, quote, innocently do something. The next thing you know, they've lost their license. They've lost their right to vote. All of this is very being very carefully crafted and designed. And to disempower people, to keep them from having access. But there are people who always know how and figure out ways to work around these things. I am uh, <clears throat> I'm deeply disappointed in the college board and the decision they made to back I was down. Just gonna go there next. <laughs> and um, I think it was horrible on their part to make that decision and to let DeSantis control them. Um, I I was also curious when I looked at the list of um, different literatures that were being taught, I, I didn't see indigenous literature included in that. I didn't see Jewish literature included in that. So I said, mm, okay. But these these are policies that do everything they can to seize the minds of people, not just young people, but their parents too. And if parents object to a book, then they have a discussion with the teacher, but they don't take the, they don't take the, the book away from all the other students. And there have, in the curriculum work that I've done across time, there have been ways in which the curriculum addresses teaching the difficult, teaching the historically, quote, uncomfortable. And history and literature are not taught to make people comfortable. I want to um, go back and just fill in some blanks for our listeners, Ms. Muse. Uh, can you talk about actually what the College Board is and exactly what they did when it comes to AP African-American uh, history classes? Uh, you know, I actually don't think I can answer what the college board is other than an institution that's existed for decades. I, I don't even really know its history, but that those that the board establishes guidelines by which students are admitted into 
universities and colleges and that their performance on these tests that they administer place a heavy weight on the ability of a student to get into a college or a university. Right. And tests that have historically been biased against folks of color. I'll just say they were founded in 1900. Yeah, they were founded in 1900. And I think it's important for this conversation for listeners to know that in 1955 is when the college board established um, the the AP exams for folks to receive these advanced placement uh, classes and, and move, you know, get college credit for them. They clearly were not creating that track for us in 1955 and with this move where they've basically removed anything right from the proposed curriculum about uh, uh, movement for black lives black literary feminist black literary feminist thought police terror uh, the uprisings of the 1960s they've backtracked on the very little bit of progress um, that was made uh, through lots and lots of fights to make uh, relevant culturally relevant and engaging and intriguing curriculum. For young black students, young black minds. Yeah? Absolutely. Um, and again, I want to emphasize, Kat, that it's not just for young black minds, but for the, the, the minds of young people in general, because it's important that we read across the cultural canyon that, that students learn, first of all, that they're literacy existed in cultures other than European cultures. And the history of literature is really important because Europeans did not come into an age of enlightenment until the 15th century. Africans, many, many villages, towns, cities in countries across Africa had writing systems, which are known as orthographies or alphabets. And there's a really interesting book called African Alphabets, The Story of Writing in Africa. And the author documents several different languages in which, which are written, in fact. And some are written through alphabets, some are written through symbols. And you go to the 12th century in Mali, and those manuscripts have been preserved. You also had lots of people who were enslaved. 20%, I think, is the stat that has been often uh, recited as 20% of enslaved people were of Arab descent. And they wrote and spoke Arabic. And there's a lot of documentation around that. So when you have the, the, quote, genius factor, like with Phyllis Wheatley, of black people writing in the 18th century, oh, my God, they can write, they can read. And, you know, that was very dangerous because Phyllis Wheatley actually had to go to court to prove that she had written what she wrote. Um, People are astounded and people are amazed. And for a long time, the church controlled the writing of black children's literature because it was felt that that was a safe place for the word to come through. And the word, of course, was the Christian word. Um, And then that shifted 
in the early 19, the early 20th century when W.E.B. Du Bois published The Brownie Books, a magazine from 1920 to 1922. And it was a phenomenal, phenomenal piece of work. Um, and I wish that someone would reprint. Well, it's been reissued, but I wish such a magazine existed today. Let's talk about the significance of uh, the Brownies books. I was going to ask you about that later. What, or rather who, was Du Bois trying to cultivate? He really, his, his primary focus was Black children and young adults. And he, along with Jesse uh, Redmond Fawcett and um, Augustus Gill, worked themselves to the bone to make this magazine realize. And it also had a very Pan-African perspective to it because, as we know, Du Bois was a Pan-Africanist. And he wanted, he especially wanted young children to know about the roots from which they came and that while slavery was an institution that held them, it was not their total identity. It was a part of their history. And that magazine reached back deep into the roots of Africa, the Caribbean. And one of the things that he did in the very first issue, which Dr. Juan Mance pointed out in a recent panel we were on, is that that cover featured a very dark Mm -hmm. girl. And that was the editor's way of saying, we are not playing into the colorism card here. And the girl had the girl had wings on and was beautifully rendered beyond certainly far beyond the stereotypes that we saw in children's literature um, of that era. None of the little black sambo images appeared in the brownie books. It was such a marvelous celebration and established a really rich tradition of black children's helped to establish a really rich tradition of black children's literature, which actually dates back in its written form in the United States to 1817, when um, one of the Sunday school uh, organizations published a black children's book. Um, But the legacy of black storytelling, of course, goes back decades, centuries, and that tradition really has continued to manifest itself brilliantly in many of the stories, children's stories done by people like Eloise Greenfield, Virginia Hamilton, Tom Feelings, and in the illustrations of people like Floyd Cooper. But, you know, I also wonder, as the hulls of the ships filled with the shackled bodies of enslaved Yoruba, Igbo, Okongo, and people from hundreds of other African villages and cities navigated those treacherous waters of the Atlantic upon departure from the doors of no return. 
Mothers had to steal their souls and bomb the terror, seizing them, seizing their, of their children. I wonder often of the tales and the fables that they told their children to bomb them. And over the course of teaching black children's literature, some of those, I came across some of those and some of them have actually been reprinted, uh, written and reprinted. And um, A Nancy and the Pot of Wisdom, The Tortoise and the Hare and A Mother's Love, and The Stories of Two Crows were among them. So mm. their liberation lullabies and folk tales cast the mold for future generations of freedom fighters. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Ms. Daphne Muse, writer, social and cultural commentator, who is currently the elder in residence at the Black Studies Collaboratory and Abolitionist Democracy in the Department of African American and Diaspora Studies at UC Berkeley. Ms. Muse, can you? So we, we talked about you know the 19, uh, the early 1920s and Du Bois publishing Brownie's books. I think it's important, and maybe you can help us put it in the what was happening politically, uh, uh, what was happening uh, to, to black people, what the, what the political tone and tenor was at the time. I mean, we're just coming out of 1919 Red Summer, right, which was an incredibly horrific period of time where white folks unleashed untold acts of violence against black folks across the country. Um, can, can, you, can you put the importance of something like Brownie's books, which then laid the foundation, uh, or promoted the you know the future of, of black literature inside of that type of political nightmare. Well, it was also time nineteen nineteen coming up out of World War One, uh, where black soldiers went to fight but were denied uh, being recognized. Uh, for what they did to, quote, protect their country, our country. Um, there was a lot of mass organizing taking place. Marcus Garvey working to return Black people who wanted to go back to Africa, the return, that the early return, which is now the model for what Chance the Rapper and so many others are doing. And Ghana has opened its arms widely to embrace that return. Um, there were, there's also women, the women's movement was, um, was gaining ground um, and women were beginning slowly to get the right to vote and people like Delilah Beasley from California, people like Harriet Tubman played a real role in the early black feminist movement. That also inspired some of the early writers, Shirley Graham, who eventually married, who went on to marry W.B. Du Bois. She wrote children's books starting in the 20s. Her brother, Lorenz Graham, was also a children's author. Um, so the race was being lifted by these voices out of the tension, out of the struggle. And at every turn that the voices were being lifted, there was a wall put up to try to stifle those voices. But people persisted. People persisted. They resisted. 
And that persistence and resistance is terrifying to those who oppress you because they figure that the boots of oppression will, will, will silence you, but they won't. I was going to ask you about white backlash specifically in this, this bucket, right, of, of trying to get uh, Black literature uh, out into the world. What, what white backlash to that look like? Are you talking about now or then? Oh, then. I'm going to move us into now shortly. Um, then it was the publication of lots of stereotypical children, uh, books that were in libraries, that were in homes, that were in school. Um, there's a and during that era, there was, and it's still around, Little Black Sambo. That book mm-hmm. is still being published. It is still around. It is still being read. There was another 10 little, I don't use the N-word, N-word. These are books that molded the minds of young white children and also to a certain extent, that of black children because books, I want to just back up a minute. The Brownies book cost less than, I don't think it was a dollar an issue. And people, it, I think maybe the subscription might have even been a dollar a year. I have to back, go back and look at that. But the affordability of a magazine was greater than the affordability of a book because a book cost more to publish. So the access that black people had to books was a real cha- it was a real fiscal challenge. The access now is greater because of libraries, schools, and the real blossoming of black and other multicultural children's literature and that children's books now have a faith to them that they didn't have as much in the past because a lot of celebrities write these books now and they have marketing, they have publicity, they have agents, they have all of the support structure that the average black children's author does not. And one of the first things an editor will ask you when you approach them about a manuscript is send me your marketing plan. Well, can, can you actually read the manuscript first before we talk about the marketing plan? I, I'd like you to really read the manuscript. So a lot of what's being published is with the um, with the support of the resources that celebrities have. And that, that became very apparent in the, in the 90s. Of course, you didn't have that in the early 20th century when these voices were rising. And in the 60s, when the implosion of Black power and Pan-Africanism really came to the forefront, when people like Julius Lester were writing and people like the members of SNCC 
who wrote early children's books and the Black Panthers and um, and Virginia Hamilton, um, Julius Lester. These early authors were, it's, it's remarkable that they were able to get their books published actually. And the small presses paid, played a huge role in getting those books out there. People like Gwendolyn Brooks wrote children's books. Some of James Baldwin has a fascinating book about uh, a 10 year old boy. Um, it's, it's, it's just so much has been done that goes unrecognized, but so much more needs to continue to be done. First thing I wanted, I, I looked, I did the Google, and uh, Brownie's books was fifteen cents a month or a dollar a year. Yeah, yeah. Um, you went exactly, uh, Ms. Muse, where I wanted to go next, and I wanted to talk about uh, the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies. I first wanted to start with what did what did we see in terms of an expansion of black publishing houses? Um, the late sixties early 70s, small independent black publishers like Drum and Spear, where I work, they had a bookstore and a publishing company, began to amplify the voices of children's writers. And I will always remember how People who would come in and drum and spear, we had a section called the Third World Children's Literature Section that Judy Richardson, Wadeen Henderson, and I developed. And the more we brought in and unearthed, the more people said, I want more. I want to include this in my curriculum. I want my child to be able to read these stories. And we had authors' events, like bringing Gwendolyn Brooks to the store, not only to talk about her work as a poet, but her work as a children's author. These independent publishers, um, it took real heart. It took real heart to, um, and toil beyond the imagination to bring these books to the public. And people were really supportive of um, Third World Press in Chicago um, there were several small presses in New Jersey, New York, D.C. Um, Julian Richardson, who owned Marcus Books, he did, I think they did a couple of children's books. And they were an independent bookstore and press with some power. I'm always pleased whenever I read an article about a new black bookstore opening in major cities around the country, um, you didn't find as many independent books, black bookstores in the South for <laughs> reasons that we understand historically. Although Atlanta had um, was a hub, has always been a strong hub of black life, black lives as a, black lives and cultures. Um, so these independent publishers, though, had been strangled and struggling to come up with the kinds of budgets that um, allow them to keep going. But there's a small company in New Jersey called Just Us Books. Oh, my word. 
They have been publishing since the 70s, and they continue to do tremendous work um, on a dime. They do $100,000 worth of work and have brought forward some of the most beautifully illustrated, fabulously written books. Um, and if you just go to justusbooks.com, people can go and look at their inventory and hopefully um, buy books for rites of passage for their children. Um, I, for, I would say for the last probably 50 years, I've given children's books um, for birthdays, for graduation, and I even gave children's books at Halloween instead of candy for 22 years when I lived in East Oakland. And that became such an institutionalized ritual that when those young children became adults, they asked me to include adult books. (laughs) when they would bring their children for Halloween. And it was just remarkable. And then I, I only one child, when I gave him a book, he said, I don't want no book. Well, his brother was with him. And his brother, apparently, when they got home, the brother showed the book he got. And the mother says, where's your book? The next thing I knew about 40 minutes later or so, the boy came back and said, my mama told me to come get a book. <laughs> <laughs> good good mothering there was, there. <laughs> there was so much joy. I mean, first of all, they were surprised that it wasn't candy. Secondly, they saw images of themselves. And some of them have real treasures signed by Lucille Clifton. Eloise Greenfield, Gwendolyn Brooks, and I hope they are reading those books across the generations to their children. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Ms. Daphne Muse, writer, social commentator, and cultural broker, who is currently the elder in residence at the Black Studies Collaboratory in Abolitionist Democracy in the Department of African American and Diaspora Studies at UC Berkeley. You said something earlier, Ms. Muse, that actually I was going to touch on at the beginning of the interview, because I, mean, I consider myself a student of movement, right? I've been, I'm an older head, not an elder, but an older head in, in the organize, black, you know, organizing black liberation world. But being in the the collaborative with you and, you know, there was the first presentation that we all did for ourselves, you know, or for each other, um, you know, which is my first introduction to, to your work here. Um, and then, you know, getting to see your amazing presentation last Wednesday, I just feel like for me, like a whole new world of the freedom struggle has been opened up to me through these conversations about Black children's books. And you mentioned earlier... Um, and I'm one. Of, I guess until now, I was one of those people that people take for granted um, the struggle to get like children's books um, in, into the hands um, of, of of black kids and others, right? Into the curriculum, um, the the importance of black children's books to the struggle for liberation. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what are your hopes in terms of moving forward? And and people understanding how much this matters and the, when, why this threat of our history cannot be lost. Well, all due praises go to librarians. 
librarians have mm. played a remarkable role. Augusta Baker, Barbara Rolick in the early 20th century, they really were trailblazers. And they, librarians have worked very closely with teachers to help inform them of the kinds of selections that they should consider for their curriculum. So that partnership, which is now being breached seriously, um, has been instrumental across time in seeing to it that the works of Alexis DeVoe, Tom Feelings, Walter Dean Myers, John Steptoe, Sherlyn Wade Hudson, that their works are included in not only curriculum about literature, but in mathematics, in science, lots of wonderful biographies have been done about women and men who contributed to um, scientific and engineering development. I mean, come on, a black man invented the traffic light. Peanut butter, mm. George Washington Garver. There are several um, biographies that were written about, a couple of biographies written about Carver um, in the 60s, 70s. I think there was one actually written probably in the 40s about him. Um, and there are, there's, there's an increasing number of young scholars who are paying attention to this field as well. And the combination of the work that's being done in the canon by these young scholars, the librarians, and um, the teachers themselves is a kind of literary triage that is essential to educating children all over the world. And some of these new scholars, including John McNair and Wanda Brooks, um, are continuing the work done by the early scholars, Donna Ray McCann, Gloria Woodard, and Violet Harris. Um, that, that, that triage has to continue. It has been effective, and its effectiveness is part of what's bringing about the attempt to stunt and ban our voices. And before the ink was dry on her book, the winner of the Newberry and Coretta Scott King Award, Amina Lukman Dawson's book, Free Water, the book was banned in Florida. It had, the ink hadn't dried on the pages, literally. And so it brings greater attention to the work in many ways, but it also breaks the backs of teachers and librarians who now face all of this censorship. And, and Ms. Mews, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. History blooms through concrete. You can do everything in the world to try to erase it, but it has a way of coming right back and smacking those who oppress in the face. Mm. It is not lost on me, and I'm sure it's not lost on you or thousands of black people across the country that we are having this conversation. 
during the little measly 28 days of Black History Month that they give us. Um, I saw, and I saw in New York, uh, there was a middle school that was served um, fried chicken, waffles, and watermelon on mm-hmm. the first day of Black mm-hmm. History Month um, by Aramark. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just looking, you know, we're dealing with the, the vicious murder of Tyree Nichols. And of course, there's, I think we're up to a dozen at this point in the new year. And I just feel like this is a very, I, I mean, I guess you said it earlier, like this is an intentional assault on black lives, black minds, black souls, black mental and emotional health from every possible, possibly uh, um, imagined direction and corner. Yeah, it is. And and I have to say, Kat, I'm a bit confused about the food matter. The watermelon part of that scenario, I get. But we promote chicken and waffles as something we take pride in. So then to set it up as a stereotype, I'm, I'm a tad confused about that one. I really am. And I, I'd like to hear more discussion about that because on the one hand we're saying oh we love our chicken and waffles i know it does not encapsulate who we are in totality but it is a part of our culinary culture so i'm i'm trying to grasp a better understanding of the conflict around that the watermelon part i definitely get um <laughs> I, that, that that's that's crystal clear. I know I so many to, black people that will not eat watermelon in public. It is hilarious to me the way that we um, censor that. What what I'm getting, and I don't I don't want to take too much time here. It just was sort of in this litany of things I'm thinking about. They were supposed to serve Philly cheesesteak and fresh vegetables that day, and then it shifted. And um, I, I, from what I understand, the the black parents at that school felt um, that they were being stereotyped. Um, they didn't mm. feel celebrated. Um, mm. that's, and that was what they, you know, that was their collective feeling. I said, but I said, okay. and, uh, but I see your point too. Um, yeah. But well, I, I mean, I, Aramark I just, apologized. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just want to insert a little personal story. So yes, please. she married a Mississippi-born white boy. He's now deceased. I have a photograph of him when he was two years old eating this huge slice of watermelon, and I love it. Uh. It, it, just, <laughs> it just plays against type. Um, yeah. But yeah. I, 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 want to, uh, I want to make an acknowledgement of Tyree Nichols, and there was something, I, I, a statement I made in the presentation that I'd like to read that starts off with a poem. And the poem is called Nana Nana Read to Me. Nana Nana Read to Me. Nana Nana Read to Me. Show me that you care. Teach me how to learn the words that can take me anywhere. Nana Nana Read to Me. Tell the stories too. Nana Nana Read to Me. So I won't feel so blue. Nana Nana Read to Me. Fill up all my soul. Nana Nana Read to Me. So I'll be smart and whole. Though his spirit will continue to alley-oop on his skateboard around his four-year-old son's heart tonight and for all the nights to come, Tyree Nichols won't be reading 
his son a bedtime story. The tragedy of that young man's life being taken by savagery, murder, brutalization, snuffing out the light of his life, or trying to, because that light is shining through his death in ways people had not imagined, is chilling. And not only have these four murderers and the EMT and all the other, and the white cop too, not only have they destroyed the life of this young, promising, hardworking man, they destroyed the lives of their families, their children. It's just, Savagery, barbarism, and white supremacy who instructed them on how to treat people or to mistreat people rolling viciously across America. I cried when I read it this morning, prepping for the interview, and I just cried. Yeah. Uh, Again. Uh, And so many bright lights. So many Tyree lights have been so many snuffed out. Um, but I want to return to some of the stories that I didn't get to read as a child, but I get to read as an adult. And there's one book in particular, Lucille Clifton's groundbreaking All Us Come Across the Water. She was challenged by publishers when the title of the book was not, quote, grammatically correct standard English, which is something black authors have had to deal with, not only in children's literature, but the whole canon of black literature for time immemorial. Um, And she pushed back and she won. And this is the book. It tells the story, it was published in 1973, and it tells the story of a little boy's discovery of his African roots and was what ended up being hailed as a stepping stone in the literature. It's just one of the loveliest, despite the history that it deals with. It's just a lovely story. And the, the awe and wonder the magic that appears in quote so-called mainstream children's literature, it's in black children's literature too. Stories of moms hugging their children, dads going to work to make life better for their children. There's a lot of struggle in these stories as well. And some authors have received huge backlash from black people about their book. Julius Lester published a novel called When Dad Murdered Mom. I think that's the title. Oh, yeah, something like that. He was pillared. He was pillared. But that's the reality. We have to deal with the realities of our day-to-day lives on all the levels in which they manifest. And so many of these stories manifest in the brilliance and the beauty of our lives. 
Ms. Muse, I could talk to you uh, for hours, but I've got to leave it there. I want to thank you so much for your life, your work, your love of all of us, and um, for coming on the show today. Thank you, Cad Brooks. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.